The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. July 15th, 2022. Happy Elderly Men Day to our listeners in Kiribati, of whom we have a few. Not all elderly men, but we also have one or two nubile maidens too listening in Kiribati. Uh, it is 5 p.m. North American Eastern Time. That's 6 p.m. in the Canadian Maritimes, half past six in Newfoundland and beyond the Americas, 10 p.m. in London, 11 p.m. in Paris, where they're still sleeping off the excesses of Bastille Day yesterday. The anniversary of the storming of the Bastille. I hope to uh, live long enough to see that again. Midnight in Moscow, half past one in Tehran for all you Newfoundlanders who moved to Iran for the half hour time zone. Uh, quarter past two in Mali, where Godabaya Rajapaska has fled. Uh, from his residence in the beautiful Queen's House in Sri Lanka in order to check out personally the quarter-hour time zone in the Maldives. Uh, back home, it's half past two in Colombo, where the enraged masses are picnicking in Gordon Gardens, laid out at his own expense, as I'm sure I don't need to tell you, by Sir Arthur Gordon to mark Queen Victoria's Golden Jubilee in 1887 and open to the public for over a century until incorporated into the chief executive's private quarters. Not anymore. The masses are back. 5 a.m. in Singapore, Honkers and Perth. I'm sorry about that. Uh, 7 a.m. in Melbourne and Sydney and an even more convivial hour for the kippers and kedgeri across the Pacific, including Kiribati, where the elderly men are partying even as we speak. You know how this works. Uh, anyone, any one of the seven and a half billion people across the planet are free to listen. Uh, if you'd like to ask a question, all you have to do is join the Mark Stein Club. And if you join uh, while our show is in progress, we'll try to get your question onto the air. Uh, let's start with uh, Jeff Barrett. Jeff says, you know, Mark, I was speaking. Oh, this is good. <laughs> I'm just uh, I'm just kind of uh, wandering a little ahead on this and this is good. You know Mark, I was speaking says Jeff to my 87-year-old uncle today who's done well by mainly horse trading land and owning some businesses but not through the fruits of an indoctrinated college education of which he has none. One might think being of his age that is very convenient to be contrarian and jaded by the experiences of life. But the reality was, he said, that the next hundred years are going to be a hell of a lot harder than the last hundred. He observed government is just trying to shove us all into apartments, give us a stipend for internet, healthcare, and a mobile phone with a miserable dictated life. He gave a specific uh, examples, specific examples of extreme subsidies already under the covers, enabled by our endless number of agencies instituting socialization of the USA. He said if inflation comes to a head, as he believes it will, will be lucky to drive up the road without being shot, and the absence of farmers and an agrarian society will create food shortages and aerial strife. Just a little sunshine for your Friday. Nobody could be a bigger fan of yours, Mark, adds Jeff, in an effort to cheer me up after that. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that. As I've said, I think it's going to get... 
Uh, well, actually, I said it just before the 2020 election that if Joe Biden wins, things are going to get real bad real fast. And people think that's just partisan piffle, which I don't really go in for because I have utter contempt for so-called conservative parties throughout the West for the most part. Uh, it wasn't partisan piffle. It was just a reflection of uh, what has happened, which is that madmen have captured uh, the uh, almost all the institutions in society that matter, so that the people who fill government jobs, the people who fill bureaucratic jobs, the people who fill the boardrooms of America and the rest of the, of the West are, are, for the most part, utterly deluded or feel obliged to go along with all the delusion. Uh, you'll find the occasional contrarian, uh, such as Mr. Musk, but in the end he turns out uh, not to be sufficiently contrarian, at least in terms of being able to impose his will on even something such as Twitter. Uh, so we're in the situation where now uh, Bill, Bill Gates is talking about vaccinating your barnyard animals. So if you don't like what they're shooting into your own veins, uh, are you really so sure you want to let Bill uh, move uh, on to the next step and start shooting the juice into the chicken McNuggets? All these things, all these things are happening at a huge speed. You know, when I said that things are going to get real bad real fast back before the 2020 election, I wasn't thinking... Um, I wasn't thinking so much just in conventional terms of inflation. And, and I agree, inflation, we all know, look, uh, you've heard me talk about this with Peter Schiff and, and uh, so forth on the Mark Stein show. I don't believe there's anything holding America up. And uh, as far as the rest of the West is concerned, uh, they sort of know that too, but they have to keep going along with the pretense because once the dollar collapses, there's nothing holding them up either. It's interesting that right now the dollar, the pound and the euro have all settled at parity, almost as if to say none of this really matters. Um, but it's particularly bad for America because, as I said, in any objective sense, America is broke and isn't, you know, I always used to be inspired as a, as a young'un, even by people like Jeffrey Archer, who's a fairly terrible sort of fellow. He was a vice, if, you, if you're not British, he was a vice chairman of the UK Tory party and wound up uh, going to uh, jail for, uh, I can't even remember, what was it? He was lying about a prostitute that he'd picked up one night in Shepherd's Market in London. Uh, and anyway... Uh, but, but before all that, I always found Jeffrey Archer quite an inspirational fellow because he was broke and he uh, needed to get out of a huge financial hole and he decided he was going to write a best-selling novel uh, and he succeeded and he pulled it off. And I found that inspirational just from the fact of you, the fact that when you're in a hole, you do something you work extra hard. You give some thought to get out of the hole. Do you see any... Most people don't think the hole that America is in is a hole. Like just spending trillions of dollars that don't exist. That having everything made that you need, not just luxury items. There's a difference between saying, oh, yes, I'd, I'd like to buy some fancy imported shoes made in Italy... There's a difference between that and having all your basic items made overseas. Uh, there's a difference between destroying small farms that are just in it for the farming and having your farmland bought up by both Bill Gates and the Chinese Communist Party for who knows what purpose. So all the indicators are that... that again, this is something I wrote about a decade ago now, that America's decline isn't, isn't going to be like Portugal's decline or Austria's decline, which is, if you've been in Vienna since the Habsburg Empire collapsed, 
you know, it's not an unconvivial place to be. But we're not in for something like that in the United States. We're in for something that is really going to be, I think, quite horrible. And that idea of, you know, being shot at as you go down the road to a grocery store, I think actually is the way it's uh, likely going to be. Uh, it doesn't give me any pleasure to say that, but I don't think your uncle is wrong about that, Jeff. That is why, you know, the whole... Th the, th th this is why certain things are not of interest to me, like the midterms, you know. Screw the midterms. The midterms don't matter unless any... unless someone uh, somewhere in that ghastly Republican Party has got any sense of urgency... Uh, and 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 that is, you know, half the as we have seen when conservative Trump Trump's, uh, you know, talking talking a good game now. But the real I I made this point to uh, uh, who I think it was to David Starkey on television a week and a half back. Uh, he was talking about how Boris Johnson shouldn't have gone along with the lockdown notice. And I, I said to him that if you just look at it on electoral terms, accepting for the purposes of argument that these various polities have honest elections, which isn't actually true in the case of the United States, but if you looked at it as a general proposition, then the right of center leaders who went along with the lockdown stuff for years on end, like uh, Trump and uh, Boris Johnson are out of office and the left of centre guys who went along with it like Justin Trudeau oh and Scott Morrison down in Australia too he's out of office isn't he so uh, Justin Trudeau and uh, Emmanuel Macron uh, they're still in office lockdown works for leftists it doesn't work for those of the so-called right Eric Dale says Hey, Mark and fellow club members, I think I'm going to ask about a local issue, the price of a house in Iowa in 2022. I have an app on my phone that alerts me when a house comes on the market and lets me click it to see the listing as well as pictures of the home and price. Even in my humble community, the price of a home is skyrocketing with even dingy homes in a bad part of town rising 80% in price from where they were a couple of years ago. Buying even a modest home can render a person house poor. It's my understanding that this is a widespread phenomenon. How can this be happening when we're merely removed from the housing crash by a little more than a decade in the US? Are we destined to become renters as opposed to owners? I should say so, mate. Uh, because something, uh, I don't pretend to know anything about the Iowa housing market, but I can tell you that in housing markets uh, I do know a little bit about, such as here in northern New Hampshire. Well, not here, actually, because I'm on the road at the moment, as you can probably tell. I'm not in my fancy studio, which is why things aren't working quite uh, with the slickness that you have come to appreciate from our Clubland Q&A. Um, but if I were in northern New Hampshire, I can tell you that the price is going up there and the price is also going up uh, across the river in northern Vermont. And it started, I don't know the reasons in Iowa, but I shouldn't think it unrelated to what has happened since the, um, since the COVID hit in 2020. Back then, in my part of the world, uh, the, we were besieged by people from Massachusetts and New York, people get basically getting out of Boston, getting out of New York, getting out of Democrat-run cities. And uh, sometimes they'd had like a little country place, a little summer place by the lake or a ski pad in the mountains or, what, or whatever. And they decided instead that uh, they were going to use these places not exactly year-round because they missed the fancy high life in midtown Manhattan and what have you. Uh, but the laptop classes, as it were, people who can work from home were going to work from home. So therefore, they were giving great interest to the kind of homes they wanted to be in. Not everyone 
who uh, votes Democrat actually wants to live in a Democrat-run city because, as you know, there are hellholes where you can just be randomly shoved on the subway track uh, and be dead or be crippled uh, just uh, just in, in in the middle of broad daylight in Manhattan now. So there's a the 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 relatively moribund real estate markets in northern New Hampshire and northern Vermont suddenly got a lot livelier because there were fancy pants New Yorkers willing to pay uh, a, a, a sum in the high six figures for a rusting double wide in Enosburg Falls up by the uh, Quebec border. Uh, and and that that is that has a knock-on effect in that it prices the locals, as people will know where they've seen this phenomenon before, out of the housing market, and they become renters as opposed to owners, as Eric Dale says. And the thing about it, it goes back to not wanting to be shot when you drive down the road to the grocery store, as as Jeff Barrett's uncle was putting it. Uh, so people who lived in a fancy part of Democrat-run cities that have got a little bit too criminal for comfort. You know, we've had these things like in Beverly Hills where ne'er-do-wells bust into the house and uh, murdered some rich guy's wife. You know, when everything gets that bad, you want to think about you know, where you can get to uh, and avoid a lot of that stuff. And a lot of that is going on, and that's why the, that's why the housing market is the way it is in, in my corner of rural America. And I shouldn't think the underlying factors are, are that different in your corner. Jan Shebout says... Dear Mark, fantastic ratings and show. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I wouldn't say, <laughs> uh, I wouldn't say uh, the ratings are that fantastic. We're just beating, we're just beating Piers Morgan every night. We're just beating him every night uh, with uh, whatever he does. And the only reason I mention that, beating Piers Morgan isn't really an achievement, but it does sum up to me, I think, the problem that uh, afflicts Rupert Murdoch and his um, media outlets at the moment in, is that with a couple of exceptions, they're not really talking about anything that matters. So, like, uh, Piers Morgan had some idiotic uh two-part interview with what was the, what was the guy called mickey rourke remember him he was big for 20 minutes in the 80s didn't he do that film with uh kim basinger where he's eating a uh a cherry trifle off her belly or something i can't remember now it's all a long time ago but basically he on monday night <laughs> by the way this is a show that goes out this supposedly goes out on a british television station and on the eve of the glorious 12th in Northern Ireland, as you'll know, I was in Northern Ireland uh, to cover the festivities from Enniskillen, uh, whereas uh, Mr. Murdoch's operation was having an interview with Mickey Rourke, a man who in uh, UK terms is best known for facilitating the entry into the United States of a man who murdered an IRA man who murdered an uh, SAS guy, uh, but uh, Mickey Rourke is on the side of the IRA and managed to get the IRA guy into the United States. Uh, so that's how Rupert Murdoch's uh, Talk TV and its flagship show, The Piers Morgan Show, marked the glorious 12th. And they wonder why they're getting killed in the ratings by a niche Canadian, as The Guardian called me. Uh, but uh, <laughs> enough of that. Uh, and I should really, you know, I should, it, it's, I just can't get over the money Rupert has wasted. Uh, and it's no wonder he's having to get divorced because you can afford a trophy wife or you can afford Piers Morgan, but no man on this planet can afford both. So Rupert, uh, 
uh, am I being a little bit too forthright about Mr. Murdoch? He had the, the the Murdoch operation has been signally unimpressive during the COVID era. So I don't want to give the impression that it's all Piers Morgan's fault, but Piers is certainly part of the problem. Anyway, enough of Rupert's poor tastes in telepresenters. Uh, Jan Shebout continues, in considering the amount of cultural rot in all of the Western countries, does it all boil down to selling our souls and anything attached for money, power, and personal gain. If our Western culture is to be salvaged and restored, where should we begin? Our governments are impotent and ineffective in practically all Western countries. Weak governments breed destruction. Is it as simple as opening up the churches uh, and refusing to close businesses? Well, I think there's, uh, I think there's quite a little bit of uh, truth in that. Uh, in the end, and again, it, I hate having to say, as I was saying 15 years ago now, and by 15 years ago, I probably mean something closer to 25 years ago. But I think it's very difficult to live uh, for, for, all, for any society to live only in the present moment. Uh, so that, for example, if you create the conditions, you know, you say uh, we're just doing everything for money, power and personal gain. But in a way, it hasn't really worked out like that, has it? Because there's a lot of people now who uh, are uh, basically living week to week. I think the average American family basically has, uh, if the bottom drops out today, they've got enough in the bank for six weeks. And then, boom, as we saw in COVID, there was a lady who asked Donald Trump a question because uh, she couldn't pay her rent and she couldn't buy food and all the rest of it. It was the, one of those ask the president things and it was the very first question. And he gave a terrible answer about the prospects for third quarter growth. She's not someone who thinks about third quarter growth. She's, she's, she's thinking about tomorrow's growth because if she doesn't have any growth tomorrow, she can't afford to feed her kids. And that's the situation that a lot of people are in. So when you talk about, oh, money, power, personal gain, we're all living the life, uh, it, it doesn't, well, you have to have, mum and dad both have to have full-time jobs in order to have just quite a crappy life these days. That wasn't true half a century, well, you know, it's changing then, but let's say that wasn't uh, true, let's go back uh, 85 years or whatever. A man could be the breadwinner and the, uh, and the mum uh, could look after the children. I mean, so the one salary was enough for what we now need two salaries to live. Then we have these single people, just to go back to this housing uh, question, problem in Iowa that Eric Dale was talking about. And, and my observations on New Hampshire and Vermont. What, what's the upshot of that? Well, it means people buy houses later. Uh, so they move out of their parents' basement later. Uh, so they have kids later, if at all. And if the, the, the rental situation you're in is the rental situation you're in in most Western cities, you know, whether you're talking about uh, Sydney or whether you're talking about London, it's an open question whether you're going to have any kids at all. So actually, how much money and power and all the other stuff uh, do, you actually, do you actually have? Now, I do agree with you that we need a transcendent meaning uh, to life. So if Christianity, if Europe is determined to be post-Christian, permanently, then something else will reign in Europe. Uh, and you know who those guys are. Uh, it's not difficult. It's not difficult to see this. It's, uh, it's the story of Faust holding the moment, saying we have built this moment is so perfect that I wish to live in it forever is not ultimately enough. We have we have basically a crisis, I think, a hole in our soul, uh, uh, to use the term that, uh, that Jan used, and, I, and attempts to fill it. And hyper-rationalists 
uh, don't grasp it, but certainly some atheists do, as you know, we've talked about our friend Douglas Murray, who uh, is not a believing Christian, but thinks that it's a general good in society. And if you could just persuade people, uh, as the Church of England did for quite a while, that, oh, yes, the language is pretty and the buildings are pretty and the hymns are quite pleasant. And there's not a lot of God bothering, but it would just be enough to uh, keep you from sliding into a life that is nothing but footy and telly and other worthless, uh, ultimately worthless activities. Chris Hall says, Hi Mark, as you and others have pointed out, the American Revolution was only actively supported by about one-third of the population, with one-third remaining as loyalists and one-third as Captain Louis Renault's blowing with the wind. This 33% threshold number uh, seems to have magical powers. For example, it handily will elect a liberal government in the Dominion of Canada. That's true. There's no widespread popularity for uh, Justin's ministry. He he just won seats in the right uh, ridings and at the expense of the correct opposition parties in order to be able to remain in government, even though very few people like him. Uh, Chris Hall continues, Although the peasants might be revolting in various places, I'm concerned that they are currently only at about the 20% mark, well shy of anything substantive happening. Maybe we're at Boston Tea Party levels of anger, and we've a way to go before Lexington and Concord. So it's party like it's 1773. Remember when the press mocked Sarah Palin for getting that correct? I do indeed. Uh, we have a very stupid, we have a very stupid media and when they pile on uh, they don't often understand what uh, they're piling on against. Um, yeah, that's a point I used to discuss with the late George Jonas all the time because George's theory is that what matters in society is not the numbers and we know that because all the great as again as i said <laughs> uh in after america or it may even have been america alone i think it was america alone so that's uh, 16 years ago now that it's never a numbers game it wasn't a numbers game in the american revolution it's not a number the the essence of almost all storytelling is the guy facing incredible odds who nevertheless uh manages to win that's true of all that's true of high noon gary cooper walking down the street in high noon that's if that's true of uh, James Bond single-handedly taking out all the minions when he's running around the hollowed-out volcano looking for the off switch for the laser beam, and he's just dispatching dozens and dozens of minions in identical Baco foil uh, cat suits riding around in golf buggies. Uh, that's the essence of all storytelling. The guy beats the odds, and it's. So it's not about numbers. It's about where the energy is in any society. The energy in the American Revolution was with the revolutionaries. Um, I, I've, I was struck by... I've been talking in this last week. We had Samantha Smith on to talk about those disgraceful coppers in West Mercia who, after she appeared on my show the previous week, went round to... Uh, intimidate her threatened she's not someone who is easily intimidated or bullied or threatened and so the first thing she did after the coppers had done that was to contact us uh, and tell us that they'd done that so we had her back on and we're going to stick it up uh, West Mercia police because they shouldn't be doing that but when I look at Telford when I look at Rotherham I think back to when I first visited Rotherham and when you hear that all these people uh, you know the coppers and the social workers they're all terrified of uh, Muslims 
uh, and that, that they'll be in trouble if they do anything about all the little girls being gang raped, you know, because they're scared of the money. And you think to yourself, well, what, what's happening in Rotherham? Are these, are these uh, Telford, uh, are these people, uh, you know, towns 30% Muslim? No, downtown Rotherham is something like 3% Muslim. Thing. I don't think it's much higher than that in, in Telford. They're not places where, uh, you know, it's not like Bosnia where or Fiji where the competing demographic is on the verge of 51%. It's absolutely, and particularly when this stuff went on, you're going back, it's less than 3% in Telford and Rotherham and all these other places. But these guys make the running because the they have the energy. They're the ones they get elected. You look, they get elected onto the council, uh, and suddenly uh, there's a guy, one guy there representing that community who's a powerful figure, and you don't want to cross him and all the rest of it. Think about what it's going to be like when they are fifty-one percent because of what they managed to get away with when it was three percent. You know, it's nothing to do with the numbers. It's to do with where the energy is in any dynamic. And that's the thing. If you, uh, if you look at the Conservative Party leadership race, where uh, I think they had a debate tonight with five, uh, the five remaining candidates, one of whom will be Prime Minister in a couple of weeks. And there is... One white man, there is one uh, Hindu man, Asian man, Rishi Sunak, Fishy Rishi, as he's now getting to be known, and there are three women. So the white man is going to be knocked out on the next vote, which I think is Monday. And there's no, so the Tory party is like, is, oh no, we've got to get, we can't possibly have a, a white man. So they've got uh, two women, a black lady from Nigeria and a, uh, an Indian man, because that's, uh, and they may, they all have their varying qualities, but the fact that no white man can get into the leadership, no English, Scottish, Irish, Welsh man can get into the final four of a Conservative Party leadership race tells you about the lack of energy in what one might call the, uh, the, the uh, indigenous persons of the British Isles. And it would be the, it, you know, it, you will find it the same in... Uh, in, uh, in in almost any other uh, area of uh, uh, of endeavor these days, it's who makes the running, uh, who's got the energy. John Fatchy says, "Mark, please explain, as I think only you could, the difference between American conservatives and British conservatives, and American Republicans and UK Republicans." <laughs> well. Um, you know, UK Republic. If you're a Republican in the UK, it means you're a supporter of Sinn Féin. Uh, that's really how the word is used in the context of uh, British politics. There are, uh, you know, there are Republicans uh, who want to abolish the monarchy totally, uh, but I find them rather surly by comparison with them. Um, Canadian Republicans and Australian Republicans. Um, please forgive my pedestrian understanding of British politics. How does a conservative monarchist of Her Majesty's Commonwealth become a conservative, undocumented American Republican? God bless the English language. I'm a bit of an Anglophile with my television habits. I love watching you on GB News. It is the last journalistic organization to make a positive contribution to society. I have great respect for the UK, as any American should, if interested in our national heritage. In the interest of brevity, I'll spare you my theory of the Holy Grail and Western civilizations spread to North America. Cheers. Look, well, look. Uh, that's just because, if you, according to which country you're in, a conservative is conserving different things. Now, as a practical matter, 
so-called conservatives in America and so-called conservatives in the UK aren't, don't seem actually terribly interested in conserving any, anything. But, but if you're a, uh, you know, I think to be a conservative in Canada means to be a monarchist uh, simply because everything that works in Canada derives from a system of government that locates all power in, uh, as uh, Simone Vale said, all power in the absence of power. It's, it's a delicate balance and it doesn't always work, but I think it's a rather clever and sophisticated system. And I don't personally uh, care for the merging of the head of state and head of government, particularly when government gets big. So it's one thing to, from George Washington to uh, Woodrow Wilson. If you have a chap like William McKinley as your president, yes, he's head of state and head of government, but he's not actually interfering in every aspect of your life. He's not on telly every minute of the day. He's a fellow with a very limited remit far away. You can get away with uh, combining them in a highly decentralized system, such as America no longer has. Um, so, but, but just to go back to your basic point, uh, yeah, obviously, uh, I think a can I think a, a a conservative is obviously different according to where you are. A conservative in Russia, for example, uh, might find Vladimir Putin attractive because of uh, Putin's. Uh, respect for Russia's pre-Bolshevik past, which is not something anyone showed much interest in uh, between 1920 and 1990. So that's that's all that that is. I, I've actually testified on this in court because I was asked about what I had in common with with Mark Levin after he uh, and his vanity television network sued me. And the question then, because, because obviously Mark Levin talks a lot about the US Constitution, it would be very surprising, I think, and I'm slightly, um, you know, I'm always slightly wary of immigrants who are more American than the Americans. I mean, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's slightly, even if genuine, it's slightly odd. A, a, uh, and certainly from, you know, my point of view, I when and I felt this. I fell in love with a small corner of New Hampshire, and I loved all the rituals, the unchanging rituals of Memorial Day and Fourth of July and so forth. But I was well aware that it wasn't bred in my soul as it was for people who had lived there their entire lives and in many cases, as with Calvin Coolidge, for generations beforehand in that sense. And I, funnily enough, the that slight disconnect was one of the first things I noticed about Barack Obama uh, was that when he ever had to say anything about Memorial Day or Veterans Day or anything, he didn't ever speak about it quite as someone who had lived it in all those small town parades and all the rest of it. So I, uh, that's, uh, that's all that is, John. It's just... You know, if you, well, it's Elderly Men's Day in Kiribati. If you're an elderly man in Kiribati, it means something different uh, to be a conservative than it does if uh, you're in Iowa or whatever. Andy says, hello, Mark. This is my, and members, this is my very first comment. Love your shows and music. We must stand together against the World Economic Forum corporatism, as Dr. Zelenko, RIP, said, better to die on our feet than die on our knees. Well, uh, um, everyone uses that line. Uh, I know it from uh, Schaub, the great editor 
of Charlie Hebdo, who said, I would rather uh, die on my feet than live on my knees. He died on his feet, killed in the massacre, uh, and when everybody was, George Clooney and Helen Mirren were all walking around with their Je suis Charlie things, and they weren't Charlie at all, and they certainly weren't Shab. Yeah, uh, I, don't, I think any theory is, uh, any conspiracy theory isn't as crazy as the reality, which is that these guys, the World Economic Forum, which people think, oh, it's just some, it's just some sort of think tank. That idiot at talk radio, uh, what's he called? The guy, uh, Mike Graham, is that his name? Just say, oh, it's just a, why are people making it? Well, I'll tell you why. Because if it's just a think tank, it seems very odd that this guy can somehow corral all the world leaders into being a member of his club. And the fact is that when you look at who turns up as Prime Minister of New Zealand or President of France, well, what have they done? Where'd this guy go? I never heard of this guy, Macron, until 20 minutes ago. I never heard of Jacinda Ardern. Which, oh, well, uh, yeah, she's been at the World Economic Forum. The problem is, even if it were benign, I mean, even if he weren't bent on global uh, domination, and he talks all the time as if he is bent on global domination, <laughs> um, uh, uh, and it pays, I think, just to take people at their words. If a guy says, uh, no one is safe until everyone is vaccinated. So he want, he's now in uh, backing the vaccination of every single person on the planet. He says, these vaccines will protect against future pandemics. How does that even work? You've got this vaccine, which was now designed for the original COVID, you know, God knows however many variants ago, but somehow it's going to protect us against whatever else comes along. Yeah, so I'm, I'm happy to stand together because I think even if it were benign, it's part of the problem that all these guys jet around together, pal around together, and increasingly seem uh, unrooted in real places like Iowa, or just to go back to that question that had been asked, what's what has a Canadian monarchist got in common with an American constitutionalist like Mark Levin? But the fact of the matter is, that may be true on the ground, but up in the sky on the private planes on the way to Davos, Justin and Joe Biden and Jacinda Ardern and even my old chum Boris Johnson, uh, when, they, when, when they get into that club, they're all the same. They're all the same. And uh, and we can't uh, we can't have that. It's not going to be any. It's not going to work out well for us. It's not working out well for us right now. So yeah, I'm happy to do my little uh, W E F anti Klaus Schwab Klaus Ming the merciless. The future is built by us. Okay, uh, before we get any more of that, time for our musical interlude. The uh, composer Monty Norman died on Monday at the age of 94. I knew Monty a little, used to see him around the West End on opening nights and so forth, always very pleasant. I knew John Barry a little better, and I incline more to John's view of a long-running dispute between the two men arising from a short-lived collaboration in 1962. I would imagine that everybody listening knows this piece of music in one form or another, but this is how it first sounded in Dr. No.
the John Barry Seven and the John Barry Orchestra playing John Barry's arrangement of the James Bond theme composed by Monty Norman. At least that's what it says on the credits. But it's interesting that having been blessed with the all-time greatest movie series theme in Doctor No, Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman and their successor producers brought it back for film after film after film from Russia with Love, Goldfinger, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, The Spy Who Loved Me, The Living Daylights, Goldeneye, Quantum of Solace, uh, No Time to Die, but they never brought its composer back, Monty Norman. Instead, they brought its arranger back, John Barry, again and again for the next quarter century. And John Barry is the guy who went on to write the title songs for Goldfinger and Thunderball and You Only Live Twice and Diamonds Are Forever and on and on. And if the subject came up during an interview on TV or radio, John would mostly be non-committal, but once in a while he'd just get weary of all the bollocks. And apropos, the James Bond theme would say, I wrote that thing, everybody knows that. And when he did say that, Monty Norman would sue him and it would end up in court and Monty would win, mainly because he'd claimed to have plagiarized himself and taken the James Bond theme from a song he'd written for an unproduced musical based on uh, V.S. Naipaul's novel, uh, the novel that made him a star, A House for Mr. Biswas, set among the Indian community in Trinidad. Here is that song from which, per Monty Norman, the James Bond theme was born. I was born with this unlucky sneeze And what is worse, I came into the world the wrong way round Pundits all agreed that I'm the reason why my father fell Into the village pond and drowned I was born under a bad sign Love Trinidad said it was a bad sign Hindus and Chinese, Africans and Portuguese Everybody worry about my sneeze Achoo! Pundit said I had unlucky teeth With little gaps between that mean a boy is bound to lie And they said that I was born beneath the star of lechery And had a very evil eye Nothing but bloody superstition From an unproduced musical written in 1961 A House for Mr. Biswas The song Good Sign, Bad Sign Music by Monty Norman uh, Words by uh, Julian Moore uh, and you'll notice that it certainly has the dum-diddy-dum-dum uh, made immortal by Vic Flick's guitar the following year, but it doesn't have anything else. The intro, the bars are brooding, uh, and um, not a whiff of the middle section. That's pure John Barry, which is why a few years ago when I did my version of Goldfinger, we used it as the instrumental break, in part as tribute to John and in part because it works so well. I'm amazed nobody else has thought to do it in the last 60 years. This heart is cold He'll pour in your 
But never mind the middle section. The dum diddy dum dum was enough to win a couple of big lawsuits for Monty Norman against John Barry. And eventually, when the issue refused to die, Monty decided to celebrate his legal victory in song. Well, unless you come from the planet Mars, you must have heard these familiar bars of the James Bond thing. But here's the thing that you might not know More than 40 years ago before the James Bond thing Julie Moore and I wrote a different song With a different feel for a different show A musical about an Asian lad from Trinidad With a Hindu raga emphasis The song he sang was this With this unlucky sneeze And what is worse I came into the world The wrong way round Pundits all agree That I'm the reason Why my father fell Into the village Pond and drowned That's the way that the melody was In the house for Mr. Biz Was before the James Bond theme Biz was, was a never shown show Before the score of Dr. No Bad sign, good sign Went like this I was born under a bad sign Pundit said I had unlucky teeth with little gaps between That mean a boy is bound to lie And they said that I was born beneath The star of lechery And had a very evil eye Well I started to ride the James Bond theme Started to build up a head of steam For a tune supreme I thought about the Biswas song That sat in my drawer for far too long The melody came on strong And those sounds gave such a good sign I dug out the bad sign tune I wrote Which sat in my drawer Till I split the notes for the James Bond thing Lo and behold those notes I split for Dr. No made the whole dump bit metamorphosize before my eyes and became the James Bond theme hit. So I was born with this unlucky sneeze became dum diddy dum 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 diddy dum dum. Monty Norman singing the story of how he wrote the James Bond theme, or at any rate, the dum diddy dum dum. But notice again, no intro, no brooding build, no middle section. The reality is that John Barry did significantly more than just orchestration, and Monty Norman did rather less than full composition. Uh, we're having a few uh, technical difficulties because, as I said, I'm basically just set up roadside uh, today. It's all a bit hit and miss and hastily improvised. Uh, so let's just uh, take a couple of uh, more questions and then close it out uh, a little earlier than we normally would. Carolinian or Carolinian, uh, my eyesight's getting so bad I can't see if there's a second eye in there. Uh, Carolinian, I think, says, Mr. Sign, you've done good and needed work on the grooming horrors, but where are the dogs that should be barking? The parents, the decent Pakistanis, are they too ashamed to speak? <clears throat> well, for a start, you're making a lot of assumptions there, Caroline, and you're suggesting that the groomers are youngish Pakistanis 
and that they but I should back up a little what's happening in English towns and uh, I'm one of the few people who uh, actually spells it out accurately on a uh, British broadcasting station is that English girls pasty faced white English girls are gang raped serially gang raped for years on end by Pakistani Muslim gangs. That's it. Now, uh, Carolinen wants to know where are the parents, the decent Pakistanis, are they too ashamed to speak? You seem to be um, thinking that these would be middle-aged Pakistanis with teenage uh, Pakistani males who've gotten a little bit out of hand. It's not like that at all. This is very often guys of 30, 35, 40, 45, 53 raping 12 and 13 year old girls. So in the cases of some, their parents aren't alive. Uh, and in the cases of others, well, let's put it this way. There is a general culture of silence in that community. We've all been waiting now for 20 bloody years for uh, significant numbers of Western Muslims uh, of whom we are told the terrorists are entirely an unrepresented minority to speak out against things like 9-11. If, uh, if they're not really willing to speak out against 9-11, are they likely to be willing to speak out against the gang rape of some no-name 12-year-old girl picked up by some Pakistani blokes in the lobby of Oldham Police Station? I don't think so. You know, one of the uh, diversity and multiculturalism and that, all that kind of stuff is all very nice. But what it means in practice in all these towns up and down the spine of England is that uh, a significant proportion of the people in those cities think tribally. You don't go against your tribe. And that has a knock-on effect because in the stupid way in which the totally incompetent and in fact evil British policing works is that if there's a bit of a spot of bother in the uh, Muslim community, let's send one of our nice Muslim officers to liaise with them. That's the way to do it. That way we show we're sensitive about it. So they send the nice Muslim community outreach guy uh, to have a word with the 38-year-old fella who's screwing a 12-year-old girl for his pleasure and then passing her around to his mates just to say, oh, look, we don't really want to have a big fuss about all this because could you just be a little more quiet about it? Just uh, don't make it perhaps a bit more of that time when you're all urinating on her in the churchyard. Like it got about that that's what you were doing. So it just got the paperwork. It's murder if you just, you know... The, the pet the, this this is we're not talking about anything normal in Western experience here we're talking about men in early middle age using 12 year old girls whom they regard you know they distinguish women wise between Muslim women who are good girls who are covered who don't leave the house without a male relative and all that and they're the girls you marry but as a result of that sh uh, sheltered upbringing they're not quite as lively as what you're looking for and so you can have fun with the 12 year old English girls because they're just pieces of trash that's the way they think of it uh, Caroline and um Let's see, one more. Uh, no, let's have a couple more. Uh, Frank Gallenstein says, Hi, Mark. While England appears to have Pakistani Muslim rape gangs in Telford, among other localities, here in the USA we've heard a tragic and confusing story about a supposed nine-year-old girl being raped by a 27-year-old illegal immigrant from Guatemala. No one can make head or tails of the story because too many are using the story to their political benefit and are reluctant to get to the truth. The latest is the rapist might be a paramour to the victim's mother. Good grief. Yeah, again, celebrate diversity. Our, our formerly white bread communities are now so much more vibrant. 
What the left wants is for this to be an abortion story. In fact, it's a multiculturalism story. It's, uh, again, it's as in Telford and as in Oldham and as in Rochdale and as in Rotherham. Uh, it's a guy who does not think the nine-year-old girl has any value. So why doesn't he? Why wouldn't he just rape her? It's not an abortion story. It's a multicultural vibrancy of diversity story. So many of them are because uh, diversity is not progressive. It isn't. It doesn't even turn us back to uh, something as messy as the Balkans. It's way beyond that. It's tribalism of the most basic kind in which the other side is simply dehumanized. And all the people who like the fluffy bunny talk about diversity. Uh, you know, we're being lowered into hell. And you think it, it's not your daughter. It's not your daughter who's getting raped by the 27-year-old Guatemalan or getting raped by the 38-year-old Pakistani. Uh, you think you can stay one step ahead of all that and still cling to the myths of diversity. Don't think that's going to don't really think that's going to be possible. There are reasons why throughout human history, uh, groups of people have settled among groups of similar people. You can call it racism or uh, simply what used to be uh, accepted as the natural preference for people to live among people who are like them. You don't, it, it's, it's nice to take a vacation and see mosques and see covered women and all the, and all the rest of it. It's a little more difficult when uh, you're living in the same street next to the covered women and your daughter is going out uh, with her pierced belly button, uh, just like all the other uh, young English slattens, uh, uh, as the uh, other guys would see it. It's much more difficult then, gets a little more complicated. Robert says, Mark, has anyone noticed that the president of Sri Lanka fled to the Maldives? Well, I did, Robert. I mentioned it right at the top of the show in our traditional recitation of the time zones, which varies just ever so slightly each week. Uh, to check that people are playing, uh, paying attention. But Robert goes on to make this point. Isn't that a place about to sink beneath the waves? In fact, shouldn't it be underwater already? Isn't it supposed to be generating refugees rather than accepting them? Or maybe the climate change alchemists don't really believe all this rubbish themselves. Yes, in fact, the Sri Lankan government provoked this uprising by trying actually to do all the rubbish that Justin and Boris and Joe Biden, for the most part, just talk about. They don't actually want to put it into action. Uh, but these guys actually did put it into action. And the result is that a wonderful, marvelous, beautiful country turned into an economic basket case. And uh, in fact, it's a um, settled system of government which I honestly haven't had much time for since 1972, but back up until 1972, it more or less worked. And um, as a result, uh, the government has now been forced to flee. And uh, to add the final humiliation to the stupidity of what they did, they're now fleeing to the country they did it all for. Because when you ask people to get specific, well, what does that actually mean, this climate change? Let's say it is happening. What will that mean? Oh, it'll mean the Maldives will be underwater at the beginning of next. Oh, I love the Maldives. Oh, sign me up for whatever it'll take to prevent those going underwater. <laughs> well, the Sri Lankan government did such a cracking job, they're now able to flee, having beggared Sri Lanka, they're now at least able to flee to a Maldive nation that is still above water. What a what a cheery thought. Uh, thank you for that question, uh, Robert. Robert is in Ottawa. I used to see Robert quite a lot because I used to get to go to Ottawa and places. But now I don't really go anywhere except I've been sitting by the side of the road and uh, not the best place to do uh, Clubland Q&A, but I've done my best and we'll have our traditional bit of music to close. And um, 
Whatever the dispute over the James Bond theme, the other songs in Dr. No, and there were quite a few, uh, were undoubtedly Monty Norman's work. This was the one he thought was going to be the big hit. And so just to double his money, he got his uh, old trouble and strife in to make the record of the song. Diana Coupland. Underneath the mango tree, me honey and me, come watch for the moon. Underneath the mango tree, me honey and me make boo-loo-loop soon. Underneath the moonlit sky, me honey and I come sit hand in hand. Underneath the moonlit sky, me honey and I come make fairy land. Mango, banana and tangerine Sugar and aki and cocoa bean When we get married we make them grow And nine little child in a row Underneath the mango tree Me honey and me come watch for the moon Underneath the mango tree, me honey and me, we plan marry soon. Mango, banana and tangerine, sugar and apple. And cocoa bean. When we get married, we make them grow, and nine little child in a row. Underneath the mango tree, me honey and me come watch for the moon. Underneath the mango tree, me honey and me we plan marry soon. Underneath the mango tree, underneath the mango tree, underneath the mango tree, underneath the mango tree. From the very first Bond film, Doctor No, the very first Bond song. Well, sort of, but not really. Words and music by Monty Norman, sung by the then Mrs. Monty Norman, Diana Coupland. If you're listening in most parts of the Commonwealth, you'll probably remember Diana Coupland best as Sid James's missus in the sitcom Bless This House. That was uh, around the time she and Monty got divorced, but she liked him well enough. 30 years later to testify in support of his version of events in at least one of those James Bond court cases. Rest in peace, Monty Norman. The 100 Years Ago show, Rick McGuinness's Saturday movie date, Stein's Song of the Week, and one of our summer poetry specials, all coming up this weekend at Stein Online. Stay safe, stay free. Mark Stein's Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. Rights Reserved.